everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing, uh, presented by Metsmerized Online. I'm Tim Ryder. Uh, with me tonight is editor at Metsmerized and a terrific writer over at Metsmerized too, Josh Finkelstein. How are you doing, buddy? Good. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. So um, lots of stuff going on. Uh, of course, it's World Series time. Um, I don't think anybody expected the Nationals to be up to nothing after their first two games in Houston. But uh, here we are. Uh, any takeaways from the first uh, two nights? Well, I think we're seeing what happens when two good pitching staffs go up against each other. And it's proof that if you have pitching that can line up with good pitching, you'll have a shot anytime you're up there. And that's honestly, it gives me a little bit of hope when I think about the Mets chances of eventually getting deep into a playoff run again, because you see, you see what's happening that when you have a really good pitching staff, it really can compete with anyone. And on a get and any given night, it gives you a chance to come back and try to make a run and go, and you can go really far with it because any given night, some, someone can break out. And it, when you have good pitching, it gives you a chance to see those guys break out. I, I guess one thing that I've really seen is how the nationals, um, I guess how they're built. Uh, they're, you know, they're not especially deep, but like you said, the pitching is good. Um, their bullpen, their their bullpen isn't overwhelming by any means. I mean, Doolittle's really fun to watch. Um, uh, the guy who came over in the trade, uh, his name's escaping me now. I uh, had a excellent second. Hudson, there you go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, excellent second half of the year. Um, but like you got guys like Rainey in there and it's just like, I'm scared for him as a Mets fan. It's like, yeah. Oh, I know what a weak spot in the bullpen can do. And um, yeah, yeah. Just timely hitting, man. I think the nationals on Tuesday night, uh, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night, sorry, were five for 12 with runners in scoring position. I mean, that's, that's a blueprint for success, man. You're not going to yeah. lose many games. If you're one, if you're getting guys on base at that pace and you're, you know, you're, you're hitting, in those positions, it's just a, uh, that's how you beat good pitching. It's putting them in positions to, uh, to fail or put yourself in a position to succeed, but yeah, it should be exciting. Um, I, I don't see the Astros laying down. Uh, this is just no team. Um, do you think maybe they were a bit out of sorts regarding the, uh, the circus around the organization over the last few days? I mean, it certainly can't be helping. And I think it's also, I think, Fans have got to be a little bit souring on the team a little bit because of that. And I'm sure, lose, you know, it almost feels like karma in a way to them right now because it's they really mishandled that situation terribly. And they're doing this in the middle of a pennant race. I'm sure that fans, this is like the last, this is the worst case scenario as a fan to be because I have to imagine a lot of them are ashamed of their organization with how they've handled this. But at the same time, this is supposed to be like the best time of the year for them. They're on the World Series. They, where they were home for both games and instead they lose both games and they have a scandal going on around the entire organization. They finally made the right decision to fire the guy today and they still they still are mishandling it because they still haven't really properly apologized to, to Epstein about about her report. So it's really been it really has been like the wor- the worst storm coming in for them that they could have imagined right now. Oh, I agree. And, um, you know, as Mets fans, you know, we think that Juan or Sanchez getting into a taxi cab accident was yeah. a bad thing. Like, imagine imagine the firestorm if this was in New York. I mean, this is a national oh, story. Yeah. And, and um, you know, this would shake any organization to its core 
at, at any point in the season. This is just it's it's disturbing how it all went down and how the Astros handled it. And I mean, as we're recording, it's 10 after seven on Thursday night. Um, I believe the Astros president of operations is speaking to the media right now. And uh, apparently he saw the um, I guess the statement, the original statement condemning Sports Illustrated's report. He saw that before it went out and I guess presumably okayed it, which just makes this even wilder. Yeah. The, the history between um uh between the, the the executive and I guess one of the reporters he was yelling at. It's just it's an absolutely terrible situation. Um how the players have been kind of thrown into it. I mean, I I haven't seen many on field roster guys speaking to the media regarding it, but I know uh AJ Hinch. Um, address the media regarding it and he really didn't have to do that um it's a it's you know he it shows how much of a stand-up guy he is but boy it's putting a lot of unneeded pressure on ball players who have absolutely nothing to do with this the organization should have cleaned this up right away um you know we could go on for a long time about this but uh it's certainly a cloud over the world series I, i again i can't see the astros um just laying down uh, I'm expecting an exciting series coming up, and again with the uh, with the pitching matchups and uh, the lineup in Houston, and and just the guys who are coming to play. I mean, Howie Kendrick is just he's a he's a wonder. He's a he's a joy to watch. Hitting, I know he has three forty in his in his age thirty six season now. I mean, yeah. it's it's incredible. I mean that you don't see. When's the last time you could name someone at that age hitting 340? Yet alone, I mean, there's only one or two guys every year that will hit 340 in a season. But yet, for it to be a 36 year old utility guy that we thought was washed up about three or four years ago is incredible. It really is. And uh, to the other extreme, you have Juan Soto, who's just an absolute star in the making. I mean, um, he had He's his a special bumps. ball player, he special really ball player. Is. He hit some speed bumps in his for in his in his last regular season, but man, he's hitting his stride. He loves being on the big stage. Uh, he's going to pose a very very persistent threat to the Mets over the next decade or so. Um, but yeah, you're looking forward to that. I believe uh, we'll be back on the air with Simply Mason at some point towards the end of the series if they go to seven. But we shall see. I'm sure we'll recap it once we get there. But um, I guess on to the Mets. Managers are being tabbed around the league. Uh, Joe Madden in Los Angeles, Dave Ross in Chicago, uh, Jace Tingley, and I hope I said his name right, Tingley or Tingley. I hope it's. I hope I got it right. Yeah. In San Diego, and uh, and on Thursday, Joe Girardi goes to the Phillies. Uh, Three year deal. Um, money was not released. Money details were not released. Um, Josh, where does that leave the Mets? So I think obviously a lot of fans are upset seeing that it's almost certainly as of now going to be a first time manager, unless if this bombshell candidate is someone that's, you know, has a really impressive track record, we're looking at a first time manager again. And I think, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing though, because I think there's this overemphasis on having this big time manager in New York. And I think that there's this I think that people are misunderstanding what the manager does in this day and age. I think that in the past, it was about 50% communication with the media and your players, and then 50% your in-game decision-making. But a lot of these decisions now are kind of premeditated by your front office for 25 of 30 teams, I'd say. And so 
what it really what the position has really evolved into it's about somewhere between 10 and 20 percent uh in-game decision making with based on the analytical information you have your front office has made for you and made available to you and it's about 80 percent talking to talking to the media and having a good communicating having good communication and having a good relationship with your players and your front office and i think that if you look at the position position more like that, I think guys like Eduardo Perez, Carlos Beltran, and Luis Rojas, they really do possess the ability to do that at a very good level. And I think, I think people need to start looking into them because I think the more you look into them, the more you like these candidates. Oh, I agree. And as someone like Eduardo Perez, where at first, when, I mean, when I personally first heard his name, I was not thrilled at all, but, um, I guess the more you hear him talk, the more I did a little research on him, um, that relatability that uh, I guess he's been there. He had a, you know, not an overly prosperous MLB playing career, but um, he stayed in the game. He tries to, at least from outside looking in, he attempts to stay up to date with the current trends in the game. And, you know, I like that. And um, in my eyes, maybe he's a long shot to get the job when you look at the other candidates in Beltran, Rojas, um, Tim Bogar, who's very impressive. Um, I guess we, we saw last year how important the manager, uh, the last two years, how important the manager job is. Um, you know, Girardi is a proven, battle-tested, World Series champion manager and player. But in, in an organization like the Mets, his strengths, or I should say like his instincts for the game, his on-field autonomy, um, I said that word wrong, uh, would be, it would be weakened. Um, you know, he already experienced the owner issues in Miami. You know, he really doesn't need that. The Mets didn't really seem to go after him all that hard either. But um, I really feel that between Beltran and Rojas and Bogar and another guy, the Mets interviewed, but didn't bring him back for a second interview, Skip Schumacher who did an excellent job with Hunter Renfro, uh, who was nominated for a gold glove on Thursday. Uh, he had a 22 defensive run saved 13.7 UZR 150. Um, you know, as a third base coach outfields coach, I think he could really be an asset. I spoke about that in an article from Metsmerized earlier in the week, uh, Chili Davis and Phil Regan, uh, the Mets have both expressed interest in bringing them back in the fold. I think between the whole group, the Mets would really have a, a, a championship caliber staff. And again, you can only put so much responsibility on the coaches. Um, someone in Mickey Calloway's spot who was just obviously in over his head, uh, a change had to be made. But um, like you were saying, I think folks put a lot of stock in, or a lot of, um, I guess, inflated stock in how important a manager truly is in the big picture. Like on a day-to-day basis, the manager is there to keep the train moving. That's what he's there for. Um, his responsibilities as far as lineups and bill plan usage and scheduled days off, you know, we have to assume that is out of their hands now. It's in the front office. Um, it's been reported as such uh, across the league. It's Maybe it's not, you know, across the board, um, a consensus thing, but it's pretty obvious that, you know, manager's responsibility is a little whittled down in the new in the new game um i think that a guy like beltran who has so much experience in this game who by all accounts is an absolute wizard when it comes to baseball he just knows the game so well um i think he would be a perfect fit 
I think filling out a staff with the guys that the Mets have interviewed that other folks really haven't, the Bogars and the Rojas's, and hey, if Perez wants a spot, sure, bring him in. I mean, um, I think Bogar is a bench coach or Rojas is a bench coach or, you know, I don't even want to designate where they're going to be or what they're going to do, but these are all good baseball minds. And that's what the Mets need around this core of players. It's a talented core. Um, everybody took strides last year. There's holes to fill in the off season and, you know, they're going to do that. And hopefully Brody has a little more uh, wiggle room as far as, uh, bringing the right pieces in and having a little bit of flexibility as far as payroll. And maybe they get creative, who knows? But, um, I think there's going to be a lot on the table and putting a good foundation in place as far as a coaching staff to the same way that Rojas did last year is kind of take the information from the front office and bring it to the coaches and the players. Um, with Rojas on the staff, hypothetically, you know, he'd be cutting out the middleman and you have so much more fluid movement of that information. I think, um, yeah, a lot, it's an exciting time and I hope yes. that's, you know, you think they're going to, act fast, or at least they have to, because again, this core is built to, I don't want to say win now, but the, the talent is there. Um, two big th- pieces. I, oh, I'm sorry. I, go ahead. I think you definitely, um, they need to move fast on this manager search. Cause I don't think that the manager search, they need to not put too much emphasis on this. I mean, don't get me wrong. Getting a, a good manager is very important, but they need to start focusing on the off season at some point, you know, once the world series ends, I'm hoping that they have a manager in place because I think that what they do in the off season trade and signing wise is much more important than, than who they pick to, you know, run the ship next season. And I think, you know, I have to give them credit. They, I actually do think that they've assembled a very good list of candidates as you were mentioning. And I don't, and I, you know, the Phillies, maybe they got the guy that we should have picked, but they really had a narrow search from the very beginning. They didn't give like they picked Buck Showalter, Dusty Baker and Joe Girardi, all old school managers. They did not give themselves any wiggle room for thought for like outside thought and for a different perspective. And listen, Joe Girardi could end up being the right guy. But if he's not, they have no one to blame but themselves for not giving them a chance to see another perspective on this. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, you look at a, all right, so look at, let's look at the angels going after Joe Madden. He has history with the organization. They knew the guy they wanted. They went out and got him. They, they, they beat everybody to the, to the punch and said, this is our guy. We're going to sign him right away. But then I look at the Padres, the Padres just had an inexperienced manager and Andy Green in didn't really work out. They have so much talent coming through the system and really kind of dormant talent there. If you look at guys like Eric Hosmer and Will Myers, um, Machado's there now. You have pitchers that are bubbling up. One has to assume they're going to go out and get more pieces because the organization said that they're willing to spend. They go out and sign a guy like, um, now it's Tingler. I'm just going to go with Tingler. And I'm sorry, Jace, if I got your name wrong, I'm going to go with Tingler because it sounds fun and it kind of rolls off the tongue. Um, so they go with this guy who's, uh, for by all accounts, he's got a lot going for him as a as a talent evaluator, as a coach, as a conveyor of the the big message. Um, lots of buzz surrounding him. They had the option to say, "Oh, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna go with a with an old school guy," and they didn't. They had Ron Washington waiting in the wings, and I'm not even gonna get into his shortcomings as far as uh, his off field issues, but um, 
they had two options and they're pretty much viewed as a smart organization. And they went with the young guy. You look at the Cubs. They had the option of Girardi, probably a a few other names. Um, They really didn't pursue Girardi. They went after Mark Loretta, um, who also has buzz, but it doesn't really do anything for me. But they go with the guy who has relatability in the clubhouse, and that's David Ross. Um, Whether that pans out or not, that's to be determined. But the Cubs are, again, viewed as a very smart franchise, ahead of the curve, if you will. And they're going out and they're bucking these trends of we don't need an experienced manager. Nine out of the 10 managers in the postseason this year uh, were hired as managers with no major league manager dugout. Uh, excuse me, no major league managerial experience. Um, it's just, it's not part of the job. It's not part of the job description anymore. You don't need it. You kind of have to have that ability to keep everybody focused. And I think someone like Beltran, who leads by example, he might not say much. And we saw that from his tenure with the Mets, but boy, he leads by example. And, um, you know, the glowing reviews from Alex Cora and his, his friends in Houston and, um, just it, the the respect that comes along with Carlos Beltran, the ball player, and the just just gobs of experience that he has in this game, I think it's going to translate well, and um, I think the players are going to listen to him. He's going to command their respect, and I, I, that's you know from the get go, I've been a, a big proponent a proponent of of Beltran taking this job if they were going to offer it to him, and for the first time in probably this whole process, this looks like a not a you know, a shoe in, but boy, this is a real possibility now. Beltran's definitely, he, I would actually go as far as to say he's the favorite at the moment. I mean, I think, I think the Wilpons and Van Wagenen are not oblivious to what fans want. And I do think that they are very interested in giving them a manager like Beltran if they can do it. I think with Girardi, the issue was they felt like they were not going to be able to, you know, He's he runs alone and you have to accept it's his way or the highway for Girardi. And I think they were not going to go for that. The only thing that would possibly step in the way, I think, of Beltran not not getting the job is obviously one of the other candidates, you know, doing well, but in interviews. But also, I think there is a fear that when you hire someone like an, an icon in Mets history, like Carlos Beltran, you have to do it with the realization that you will have to fire them at some point. And that becomes tricky because it puts you in a predicament where a fan favorite has to turn into a foe at the end. And I think, I think they do fear doing that, but at the same time, I don't, he's not, he doesn't get the same treatment in Mets history as a David Wright does. So I do think that they are willing to bypass that at the end of the day. That's a great example. Cause David Wright, that's a legacy that just cannot be touched and you would never want to mess that up. But a guy like Beltran, who had his, his, I don't want to say troubles because he's one of the most offensive and defensive prolific players in franchise history, but he had his low points. We could say that, um, whether it be injuries, whether it be the, the, the phantom knee surgery, um, whether it be the strikeout against Wainwright, which I got over like a week after that, but people are still hung up on it. It's I think really- there's way too much <laughs> overemphasis on that one incident. I mean, the fact was, I I would bet, I would bet with all my money, he would not have hit, he would not have hit that pitch if he tried. That that w- that curveball was the most wicked pitch possibly I've ever witnessed. So there's no way he was going to hit that, in my opinion. And even if he could have, guess what? 
we every hitter has been frozen before at one point or another. It just happened to be in a very bad spot for him. And I think and I think to blame him for that, I think, is a little bit unfair. And you win as you win as a team and lose as a team. You can't put it on one guy for losing the, the 2006 playoffs. No, and he he had a terrific series. He went like eight for twenty in that series. He had like six RBI. He had a terrific yeah. series. Um, yeah, the Mets had chances. Cliff Lloyd sent one probably ten feet foul. That was would have been gone. Would have won the game. Uh, two batters before Beltran. So I mean, they had their chances. Um, yeah, yeah I, I got over it fast. I'm just I don't know. It, it was weird. Oh seven was tougher to get over, but well, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's another discussion for another. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Two big pieces of the core moving forward, uh, presumably one because he's locked up for the foreseeable future. And the other one is because he's also locked up, albeit much cheaper for the foreseeable future. Uh, Jacob deGrom and Pete Alonzo, they've begun securing their respective hardware for their efforts last season. The MLBPA named deGrom the outstanding National League pitcher and Alonzo the outstanding National League rookie on Thursday. Um, Those are, you know... (sighs) I, I guess it's maybe I don't want to say it's a foregone conclusion that they're both going to win the Cy Young and Rookie of the Year, but it's about as close as you can get. Um, do they have any real competition? Or I should say, it, we, we know that Degrom is not going to be unanimous, um, but do you think that Alonso is? Uh, maybe not unanimous, but I would bet very close to it. I mean. I think Fernando Tatis Jr. would have given him a run for his money had he been able to stay healthy the rest of the year, but he got hurt and that kind of, you know, it cleared the path. The strange thing that I I find between those two races is that Mike Soroka obviously had a phenomenal season with the Braves, but he actually has a better chance at the Cy Young than he does at Rookie of the Year. He won't win Cy Young or Rookie of the Year, but he has a much better shot when it comes with that award than it does with Rookie of the Year because... Pete Alonso, I think, I think it's been established throughout the game. Even he will win the award, but I think the Cy Young, the thing was like no one really was too impressive to the point where it was clear cut either way. Ryu, the issue with Ryu is that he doesn't rack up the strikeout numbers that any of the other pitchers do, so it made it. It's kind of a murky pitcher that picture there, and I think Jacob Degrom obviously is the is the favorite now, and I I would bet a lot that he will win the award, but there are some other appealing candidates in a similar range to him, like Soroka, like even Steven Strasburg was making noise at one point for that. Although I don't think he'll get it. And I mean, Ryu is a candidate still because he's the ERA leader, but I would bet he doesn't get it because basically every other statistic Jacob deGrom would beat him in at the moment. Yeah. I think deGrom, um, I think it's pretty much, uh, locked up that he's going to get his second straight Cy Young and the historical implications with that are huge. I know me and Jake Resnick spoke about that a few weeks ago, but uh, yeah, we got to be, you know, we're getting close to the voting, I guess, result uh, voting announcement, which is uh, first week of November. I want to, I want to say, but I think that should be exciting. Now you said something about Tatis. Tatis, when he went down with injury, hitting 317, 379, 590. Uh, 150 weighted runs created, 398 weighted on base, 3.6 wins above replacement per fan graphs. I think you're 100% correct. If he was healthy, if he would have kept up those numbers and Pete would have got 
would have uh, still would have hit his uh, his rookie record in home runs. I think it's conceivable that even with Pete's home runs, with that type of performance from a rookie, from such a young rookie playing such an important position at shortstop, um, it's funny how I, I, Jeter and I guess before him, Cal Ripken, they really turned the shortstop into a power position. But that's uh, not a power like hitting position, but it's just a, such an important position. But that's well, well that's another discussion. But. <laughs> If Tatis would have continued those numbers through a full season and Pete would have still finished the year as he did, this would have been one of the more um, uh, entertaining rookie of year, rookie of the year votes in, in my in recent memory, at least in my mind. And in, you know, I'm not racking my brain, but like th- that's a that's a historic little little run there. Yeah. You have two guys who are just incredibly talented, um, you know, having just standout seasons and. uh yeah, uh, lots to look forward to future of the game. But yeah. um, I think I they definitely. I think oh, what please, you can please. definitely say. Um, uh, I think there's just there's so much young talent in the league right now that um, you know it's really a f- a fun time to be a baseball fan. And I think every team, really, almost every team, unless if you're the Baltimore Orioles or the Detroit Tigers, you really have something to be excited about with the amount of uh, young vibrant talent in the league at the moment. Even guys like, um, like Hunter Pence and Sonny Gray and Josh, Josh Donaldson, I guess he's had his, his run, but, and he's not that old, but the same thing with Sonny Gray, but guys are reinventing themselves. Um, yeah, there's so much information available, especially to pitchers, but even to hitters, you know, stuff with this virtual reality before the game. Um, that just blows my mind because that whole, you know, it takes a couple of at bats to get a feel for a pitcher. Guys are pretty much attacking that and trying to wipe that out. And that's, you know, maybe that's why we're seeing first run runs being scored against Garrett Cole and Max Scherzer and, you know, and Justin Verlander in the world series is because, you know, just there's so much information out there. Um, Biomechanics, uh, the spin rate revolution that we're seeing, it's just making the game. It's putting a product on the field that's so much higher than it's ever been. And this is juiced baseballs aside. Just the level of plays, unlike anything I've ever seen. And with the young class coming up, who's learning how to be major leaguers with this information available to them, it just makes it that much more exciting. I'm I'm absolutely pumped for the future of this sport. Uh, hopefully, everything behind the scenes and off the field they'll get straightened out because. Uh, no more Roberto Osuna's, man. We can't do yeah. this. <laughs> we can't do that anymore. And please, guys, I know I got Josh on it because we've had this conversation privately. Guys, we got to stop getting on Zach Greinke. I know it's probably going to come up when he makes his next start. Folks, he's got a serious, serious social anxiety issue. The fact that he's he tenses up in front of media should not be surprising to anybody, and we should applaud him for doing his thing up there. He has an obligation as a player. Should they waive it? Most likely, yeah, Major League Baseball should intervene and say, you don't have to do this. He might still do it because he seems like that kind of guy. But um, Josh, you wrote a terrific article for Metzmerize regarding this. Can you just throw in your two cents on on how this all happened and and how we could do better in the future? So I think that there's this, um, you know, a lot of I saw this with Yankee fans. And let me first start off by saying um, I I think when we talk about it like with Yankee fans booing him at the stadium and say, and there are people making fun of social anxiety. 
Well, let me say this. John Heyman worded this best. Those people are not really fans. Those are just terrible people. They're posing as fans at that point. They're not like anyone who has the nerve to make fun of someone for social anxiety as a pitcher just because they don't want to play for your town play for your team or they can't pitch under pressure because they have social anxiety. Um, I think that you, you, you don't have the right to call yourself a baseball fan at that point. You're just being a terrible human being at that point, in my opinion. So I think in the future, I think we just have to, I think the key is trying to be more accommodating, whether that means just being more open-minded when someone says something about, how something affects their social anxiety or if they have another type of issue in their life that they have to deal with and overcome. And I think that a guy like Zach Reinke, it's actually really great to have someone like that because he's look, he is an icon to some people that deal with mental health issues. And they, he, they look up to him and say, if he can do it, then I can too. There's no reason we should be undermining that and making it more difficult for a player to succeed in this environment. And I think, I think p- p- not making him go in front of a camera if he's not up to the task is probably a step in the right direction. But I mean, I think really the bigger key is don't be the one poking fun at him if he doesn't have the answer that is the greatest soundbite in the world. Because not because even because none of us are always on the top of our game every single time we're all going to struggle with speaking to the press. I mean, speaking to the press is difficult enough, but for someone with social anxiety, it's probably 10 to 15 times more difficult. And I think to put that in perspective is more important. I think just being more empathetic to the situation could go a long way towards making this a more friendly environment for everyone involved. Well, I think ideally that's going to be, the, the goal here, and it's not just mental health issues, it's pretty much across the board. All of these um, outside elements that are completely human elements, but they can be improved upon simply by trying a little bit harder. Um, all, all of these things, you know, the league and the, the community as a whole, the baseball world, uh, the, the, let's just put it to everybody yeah. out there. Don't you have to limit to limit it to sports, you know, be that change, be that, you know, be the person that looks out for the person that's maybe, I don't know, if you're in school, the kid who's being bullied, you know, look out for him. All these things. It's just little tiny things can mean so much in the big picture. And um, it's I, it's everyone, I guess you were saying what you were saying earlier, and I'm sure everyone's heard a, I guess everybody's heard a variation of it, but um, you look at, you know, everyone's facing a battle. You know, there's no reason to get on somebody just because you don't, like how they're doing it or what they're saying. Just everybody's going through something. You know, Zach Granke, we applaud you for, for fulfilling yes. your obligations. I, I think you made a very good point talking about how like this shouldn't be just in relation to sports when we talk about these issues, because I, I see on social media a lot when someone comments about like how this is wrong and this is not this is not okay. They're like, they're athletes. They get paid $30 million or whatever their salary is. And I think to diminish it to that and say that just because they're making a lot of money or they're playing a sport that's on the biggest stage of the world to make it sound like they shouldn't have like 
any sort of emotion or anything about a situation they deal with. Everyone struggles and money does not just make those go away. And to, and I think that we have to stop diminishing athletes and celebrities to making them think that just because they're famous, they're not allowed to feel the same way we feel about certain things. And so I think we just need to put that into perspective more when we consider athletes and us. The fact is we're all people at the end of the day, and we all have emotions, we all have struggles, and we all deal with stuff that's that impacts our life. And we have to find a way to live with that. And I think we can cultivate a better environment for that if we all are willing to keep that in mind every single day. Sure. And, you know, it starts with a, it starts with a conversation like this one, but then you can take it into your personal life and, you know, just be good people, everybody. Come on. (laughs) That's all. But on that note, I think we've uh, I think we've touched all our bases. Once the Mets line up their manager, other dominoes will start to fall. Once the World Series ends, people opt out, qualifying offers, all that exciting stuff. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure we'll be back. Josh, I'm, I know we're going to have you back because this was a yeah. blast. Appreciate um, having me. I, I'm glad to come on whenever. Awesome, man. Yeah. Hey, it's, it's the MMO family. We're going to get everybody on. Yeah. We're going to try at least. Um, anything you got anything coming out this week? Any anything you'd like to plug? Um, I don't have anything I'd like to plug at the moment, but, uh, I'll be writing on Saturday. So hopefully keep an eye out for that. Excellent. And where can everybody find you on social media? Uh, so for Twitter at Josh Fink 313, um, and Instagram, Josh two underscore Finkelstein. Excellent. And of course, everybody, uh, you could find us on all major platforms for podcasts, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, the whole gamut. Um, of course, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review. Uh, subscribe just so you'll be notified whenever we got new episodes coming out. And um, we'll be back next week. I believe we may have a somewhat special guest, but let's not... Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Schedules can get tied up, but uh, hopefully big news coming. Uh, Again, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Of course, man. And uh, everybody, we'll see you next time. Hopefully the Mets will have a manager by then. (laughs) Hopefully. All right. Hopefully. All right. Let's go, Mets. We'll talk to you guys soon.